What's up, Hyperfast Nation? Welcome to this episode of the Hyperfast Wealth Show. I've got a special guest who started off in residential real estate, made the transition to commercial as an industrial real estate specialist, now is both a industrial real estate broker and investor. We talked about all of those things as well as the metaverse. Welcome to the show, Chad Griffiths. Welcome to the show today, Chad. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, excited to be on Hyperfast Nation. Yeah, I uh, I can't wait as well. I know you've got a ton of cool stuff uh, as an investor, as a broker to talk about. So let's dive in. Tell our listeners and our viewers out there today uh, a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now, what you're up to, what you're doing, how business is going, all that good stuff. Cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to keep it short, uh, just to, for, for brevity. I, I say my story goes back to, uh, 2004, uh, and I had bought and sold a few houses with some friends. I uh, didn't really do too well on it, but didn't lose money, but kind of got an itch just to get into real estate. So in 2004, I actually joined a residential brokerage, got licensed. It was a pretty quick process back then, joined a residential age office, did it for a year and quickly discovered it just wasn't something I wanted to do long-term. So reached out to a few people, uh, decided commercial real estate is was something that I wanted to explore. Uh, ended up getting put in touch with a brokerage in 2005, uh, and I've actually been at that same brokerage ever since. So I've been uh, selling and leasing industrial real estate since 2005, uh, and then started building my own portfolio in 2014 as well. So residential to commercial, huh? Yeah. And actually at the time I knew very little about industrial real estate. I, yeah. I thought I'd be like selling office towers or shopping malls, like something like really cool. Uh, it just so happened the brokerage that I joined was heavy into industrial real estate and, and I didn't know much about it, but just because that was the focus of the office, that's what I, I got sent into. And, and I'm really glad that I did because it's actually, it's been a very rewarding career and uh, it's certainly come with its stress along the way, but uh, I, I'm very glad that I accidentally stumbled into industrial real estate. What's been the difference between the two? Because a lot of a lot of agents, I think they're like kind of scared of commercial. Or, you know, it's just because we don't they don't know it. But what what was the yeah what was that I, transition I, like? What was what's, what what the difference has been? Yeah, it was a scary transition because I did okay in that first year uh, that I was in residential. I I, I did okay. I, I was in the hundred percent club for Remax and uh, I, had, I did okay. And when I went to commercial, I thought I'd be able to utilize some of those resources that I had, like some of the contacts and people that I knew. And it turned out that none of them had any comfort with me. And, and that was just a reflection of the fact mm -hmm. that I knew nothing about commercial real estate. So they, their response to me was, how do you want me to trust you when you don't even know what you're doing? And it was a, it was a fair criticism. Uh, but I quickly realized that any business I was going to uh, drum up, I'd have to do on my own. 
Uh, so it was just doing, doing a lot of old school prospecting. That was in 2005. So that was before social media or utilizing any of the current technology. It was just that old school prospecting. And I think that that was, that was probably the biggest difference up front is that in residential real estate, from my experience anyways, you can you have friends and you have family and people are moving and, and buying and selling houses. And it's pretty easy to get your foot in the door early on. Still takes a lot of work to cultivate a business and be successful, but you can at least have early success if you just work hard and and keep in touch with people that you know that was the exact opposite in in commercial real estate where i had to go out and hunt for every piece of business mm. that i did and it took a few years before were you hunting for for buyers sellers landlords tenants who were you I, who were you I, hustling I, for everyone everything, everything. Yeah. <laughs> any anyone that would uh would take my phone call I, I was hunting on uh and i think the first deal that i did was actually a a, a small second floor office space in an industrial building. Uh, it was a, a, a tech company that originally wanted to lease warehouse space. And then they decided that they wanted to just do office. So the first deal that I did was probably a 1200 square foot second floor office deal. And I think my commission on it was $1,200. So I was, I came from having like a reasonably successful year as residential uh, realtor uh, to going into commercial real estate where I looked at my first check. And then by the time you pay your brokerage splits and you pay tax on it, it was a very meager check. Uh, and I was like, holy smokes, what did, what did I just sign up for on this? So that, that was a scary proposition. Uh, and it took it took probably two or three years before I was able to uh, replace the income that I had in that one year in residential, maybe even longer, might have actually taken four years. Uh, but then since then, uh, so four years in the last 12 years or so, I've greatly surpassed what I originally did in residential. So it's I, I would say for anyone that's considering commercial is, is be afraid because it is scary. Those first few years are really tough to get to get up to speed on, on how deals get done, how long they can take to do. Uh, and, and the fact that your network might not be as valuable to you as if you were a residential agent, uh, those would be the things that I would say is be prepared. It's going to take a, a while, a couple of years before you get your foot footing under you. But once you do, there's an opportunity to make a really good living in it. And the, the deal cycle, you kind of hinted at that, I think, but the deal cycle is probably longer in, in those cases. Am I, am I, right on that uh, uh, there's a spectrum compared to residential yeah like you could do some leases that are pretty quick that would be a similar time time frame from someone gets in touch with you they need to lease a space by the time you find something and negotiate it that can be a fairly quick turnaround it's still probably going to take a a few weeks of paperwork and negotiations but i've been involved in some sales transactions which have taken six to seven months of conditions and that's just if you need more reports, if you need more environmental testing, which is prevalent in commercial real estate, if you need more environmental testing, or if there's hair on the deal because financing issues, six to seven months of conditions would scare a lot of people where you're probably used to one or two weeks uh, to, to go through like the motions of a home inspection and financing. Six to seven months of conditions can, uh, can definitely give you some gray hair. Yeah, so because of that, you, you got to go find the deals quicker than yeah, I, maybe I think a, a residential person, you know, re agent starting out. Yeah, it, it, no different. Like you, I'm, I'm sure it's the same as, as you done. You want to have a lot in the pipeline, right? So you're not just working on one deal at a time. You've got a few darts in the air at any given time. So one might take six or seven months, but hopefully you've got a half dozen or a dozen deals in that pipeline so that they are closing. And, and I think that the carrot to go through 
that those motions is that the fees can just be a lot bigger. Whereas there's yeah. probably a natural cap on, on like what a residential transaction would be just because of the value of the house. If you sell a $30 million building, the fee on that can be exponentially higher. So it takes a lot longer. It's the, the deal cycle is, is much more prolonged, but the fee at the end of it can be very enticing. Now, um, you, you said you started off a lot of the old school methods. Fast forward to today, are you utilizing social media to to go get business, to go find deals? To an extent. Uh, like I, I'm pretty active yeah. on LinkedIn and, and I've done a handful of transactions for people that have reached out to me. Uh, just if you get to know people over LinkedIn over a period of time, it's a very slow process. I, th- I think it might be different in residential and you, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but there, you might be able to help people out sooner. Whereas in commercial real estate, you've got to find somebody that has a need at that exact moment and they might not have a need to renew their lease or find a new location for years at a time. So it's a much more long game playing that social media uh, game to try and prospect for business, at least from my experience on the commercial side. Uh, whereas that those old school techniques still still work exceedingly well. Uh, dropping off brochures for neighboring businesses, trying to prospect for business however you possibly can. Referral partners. I get I get a lot of leads from lawyers, accountants, bankers, and, and so forth. Even residential agents are actually a great source of business. So it's though I, I've found that the old school method is still the best way of cultivating business, but you can supplement it by adding in some of the newer social media techniques. Yeah, I I think people in your kind of time frame like that, that that Gen X or maybe very, very early Gen Y, I, I think they're some of the most dangerous, and I use it in a good term, but dangerous agents out there because you know the old school methods. Um and probably started off that way or, or, or grew up when that was prevalent, but you, but you know, you're, you're able to adapt and use what's available now on social media. So I think there's this, you know, and I'm, and I'm in that group too, that the kind of the Gen X timeframe where uh, I kind of, I kind of know both. I know the old way and the new way. I, I think that makes you, uh, you know, a lot more effective than, yeah, than we're, someone we're, who's just on you, you know, one side or the other. <laughs> Exactly. We're kind of like right in that middle ground, right? We're, we're not the boomers who are stubborn to embrace new technology and rightfully so. Like uh, a good example of that is, uh, is this metaverse that Zuckerberg's come out with where he's trying to move everything to be an online platform. When I first saw that, I, the, my reaction was, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to live within the metaverse. And then I realized that I'm probably like one of those boomers that was like, I'm never going to go onto Facebook. <clears throat> For the same reason, right? Is it's it's hard to embrace like the next generation of technology, uh, but we're kind of right in that middle where I didn't grow up with with uh, a Facebook and LinkedIn and all this social media. It wasn't it wasn't until probably two thousand and eight, two thousand ten, somewhere around there, that we started adopting it to our business. But that next generation of people coming in, they've they've been on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever whatever the cool kids are talking about these days. They, they've been on there since they were since they knew about it. So it's right. we're kind of right in that middle on that. And, and I agree. I, I think it is good having a combination of both. There's one doesn't replace the other. It's one supplements the other. Yeah, I um I I, I agree with those points. And I, I I don't know what the metaverse 
really is or what that means is it is it, is yeah. it much more than just a, a new name for facebook like <laughs> i i don't you don't want to go down the rabbit hole on this because it's actually yeah. pre, it's pretty it's pretty depressing what they're proposing but uh okay. and again i i'm i'm almost, you could call me like the, the next boomer because i feel like i'm not nearly in tune with what with what uh like my kids are are involved in as an example but what they're proposing is that this metaverse is going to be like an alternate reality where you go into a virtual world and no different than if you were to go into a shopping mall or you were to go visit paris you'd have the ability to do that all within this metaverse and again i'm probably not doing it justice and 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 uh, mm. for your younger brokers that are listening, they'll probably correct me on how, how wrong I am on all this, but they're investing a considerable amount of resources into that Oculus and some of the underlying technology that they have. And I think that that's why they're, they're seeing some of these NFTs and this artwork really skyrocket in value is because people think they're going to be able to hang this virtual artwork in their virtual houses and, and again, to me, that sounds crazy. I have no interest in living in this alternate reality, but it's, that's the projection that Zuckerberg and, and Meta or Facebook uh, are now expecting this wow. to go, which is just crazy to me. It's so, it's so crazy, but that's where it seems to be. Headed. Yeah. It feels, feels like we're like going to be in the matrix or something. It does. Know, it, it really does. And, and to me, know. that's sad. Like that's sad to, to, to think that people have to escape <laughs> real life to go into this virtual world where they can control and manipulate everything. That's just that seems sad to me. Maybe 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 that's how showing houses will will go down though. But then... I, I wouldn't be surprised if that does happen. I, I think that there one uh, application that I think would be relevant would not just showing houses, but even meetings. Right? If you could have a a headset on one of those VR headsets. And instead of having a, a zoom call where we're talking back mm. and forth over a computer screen, you might be virtually immersed in this environment where it seems like we're actually in the same room. So I, I think that there could be some applications for, for business, but it's all this make believe land where people are going to go house to house and visit with people and chat with their friends in this weird world. And I know we're getting way off topic on that, but it's still a fascinating uh, experiment on on what they're trying to propose for the future here. Yeah, I mean, if you think it's hard to keep up with your kids now, just wait till they can <laughs> slap this thing on their head and be at Disney World instead of you know the living room. Or no kidding. Backyard. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, may maybe there'll be some real estate applications like you you can show houses, meet clients, maybe. Maybe people will, will want to be, buy uh, fake virtual world houses instead of ones. There, that there are, is a know, thing younger. on that actually. There's, there's a website now that do, that is selling this these virtual land plots. I don't recall the exact name on it. Uh, if someone's interested, a guy named Scott Edward uh, did a, a video on this on YouTube. Uh, if you just look for for him on there, he talked about this in detail on this this virtual land that you can build that you can buy stuff in. And apparently, some of these plots of virtual land are selling for millions of dollars. People are just going crazy. It's like tulip mania all over again, where where people think that this virtual land is going to have real value. Mm. So it's it's crazy. It makes no sense to me at all. But uh, there's a lot of money and resources being thrown at this right now. So you have to think it's coming down the pipe. Yeah, it's. I, I have trouble wrapping around my head around the real estate. Some of some of the real estate applications. I understand the showing house, meeting people. That that could be cool. Uh, I think what, you know, might be 
what, what I struggle with now is I know they, they sell like real estate NFTs and mm-hmm. um, if you could just create like a similar version, but give it a different token ID or whatever, and maybe I just don't understand it. Um, you know, that, that's, that to me is a lot different than a house that exists in a physical location that there's only like one of those. And uh, so it's, oh, I, I agree completely, but yeah. th- that goes back to us being the next boomers, right? Like We're, yeah. we're going to be the boomers in 10 years where we're, we fail to see the logic in this and the next generation is just going to dismiss us as being old and irrelevant. <laughs> but I, I share those thoughts. It seems so crazy to me, but I don't, I don't get it. I just don't understand it at all. Well, uh, switching gears to real estate, when did you go from, you know, being just the agent or broker to investor as well? Yeah, it, how did it, that happen? It, it took me about nine years. And part of it was first few years, I just didn't make a whole lot of money. So I was just treading water trying to survive. Then then as I started to make more money, then you know, I was raising a family. So I had to buy a house, start paying for sports and everything that came with having kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had to save up enough money that I could comfortably invest it. So I bought my first industrial property uh, with a business partner in 2014. Uh, it was just a small industrial condominium. And then we added a second industrial condominium and we pretty much added a property every year since uh, we've got a pretty good sized portfolio going right now. We've got a, we're, we're just closing on a property. Uh, we signed off at the lawyers last week. It should close next week. Uh, it's a $4.1 million property. So it's a multi-tenant building uh, that takes our portfolio to about 17 million. And we've got some partners on, on some of the assets that we have, and we've got debt on it obviously as well. So it's not as impressive as just owning $17 million between the two of us. It's, uh, it gets diluted pretty quickly, but in the course of seven years or so, we've, we've built up a decent sized portfolio and we've got plans to continue adding uh, at least a one property a year for the foreseeable future. What do you think the keys are to succeeding as an industrial uh, real estate and investor and, and then what's what's kind of like the box you buy in is it is it new stuff do you do new builds or are you buying existing or um you know can you tell us your box and how someone else can what what they need to do if they want to get into this yeah I, I would say the the most important part by far is having a really thorough understanding of of the industrial real estate market. So that's not just knowing what industrial real estate is and what it isn't, but also having a very detailed knowledge on the local market. So picture a, uh, a, a lawyer as an example, a lawyer that wants to go and invest in industrial real estate, unless he has a really solid idea of about what industrial real estate is and any limitations a building he's considering might have. He also needs to know what deals are happening, what, what are some market comps, who's active in the market, what tenants are looking for in space, uh, are they looking for 28 foot ceilings? Are they looking for 40 foot ceilings? If he buys a building that has 18 foot ceilings, he could be at a clear uh, disadvantage. So I think the biggest thing that I'd recommend to people is to just really understand the industrial real estate market. And it's it's different than any other asset class, right? Everyone has some understanding of what an office building is. We've all been in shopping malls. We have a general sense of what retail is. Uh, multifamily is just an extension of residential for the most part. So people have some degree of familiarity with that, but industrial real estate is a beast unto itself. Unless you've worked in that industry before, you might not know the difference between a manufacturing property and a warehouse property at how certain things can be attractive to one tenant, but not to another until you fully dive in and understand 
all the differences and, mm. and the nuances and what makes up an industrial property, you'll, you'll be doing yourself a disservice and at risk of, of losing your investment altogether. So once you have a good understanding of what industrial real estate is, and then all those market fundamentals on, on vacancy rates and absorption and price per square foot and cap rates and all that, everything else that ties into that market, uh, then you're in a position where you can start uh, developing out your portfolio, but it's, it's one step before the other. And I wouldn't recommend to anybody to take that first step until they've, uh, take that first step of buying a property until they've done all that preliminary work. How, how can people, if they want to learn, like, what are the best ways for them to go out and, and get this education? Yeah, there, it's there is. It, it's it's crazy, actually. Like, and I'd be curious to hear your experience on this as well, Dan. But there's so little information out there for industrial real estate. Uh, I, I read a a market survey on on this. It goes back to 2018. And in North America, there is 20 billion square feet worth of industrial real estate, and the aggregate value is 1.5 trillion dollars. Like, it is a massive wow. industry. But there's so little information out there, but there's, there's very little in terms of a textbook or a book or a course you can take. Uh, so it really is just a, uh, you have to be a self-starter really to, to go and do this. And it's just find any information that you can uh, read articles. There's some really good publications out there like Globe Street and NAOP. Uh, that that put out reports on industrial real estate and talk about this in detail. They put out a number of articles and, and news stories. So once you start immersing yourself in in the, the, the discovery of industrial real estate, that's when you'll find other things. And depending on what city you're in, you can go onto the different brokerage or appraisal websites, and they'll usually put out quarterly reports, uh, what's happening, what transactions have happened, and really just try to paint a picture of the market as a whole. But it, it really takes work. It's it's something that not only do you need to learn all that information up front, you need to be a student of the industry for the rest of your investing career to really have your finger on the pulse of it. So there's not necessarily a, a, a single course I'd recommend. Uh, there, there's a really good book by a guy named uh, Justin Smith, uh, who wrote a book called Industrial Intelligence. And he's a top producing broker out of California. And he, he's a tenant rep broker. So he works with like the big companies that are leasing space. And so he wrote it from the perspective of what companies uh, need to look for when they're leasing industrial space. That's a really, really good book to get, to get a start on it, but it only tells the story from the tenant's perspective. So still a lot of work that people need to do to round out their full education, but it's, it's something that you just need to be driven to find out that information and just read as many articles as you can. Uh, read the news, read these market reports that get put out by the different brokerages and just commit to it. That's a long-term process before you're going to be comfortable making a decision. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like if you're fairly new, you should find, find someone like you to, you know, go, go help out on the brokerage side of, of, yeah, I I mean, it's no different than, than residential, where if you're right. going to in, invest in something, you need to have a team behind you, right? You need it's a probably harder too, actually than residential. Yeah. They, well, there's, there's just more complexity. It's yeah. just, there, there's more things that can go wrong. And so less that, information probably available. Like, like I, I can, I can learn a lot on, on a residential, you know, deal. A, there's probably just, just, just so many of them. Everyone talks about it. There's Zillow and this and that, like there's people, yeah. people can get the data a lot easier. Yeah. And, and that is, you're right. You're spot on with that. The, the It's much more scarce getting that information. It's just harder to come by. So I 
just like having a team, right? Having a lawyer on your side, a banker, an accountant, a broker, uh, having a full round out team. Uh, and if it, another thing that I'd actually recommend to investors, if they're considering it, is try and partner with somebody. Uh, the chances are that there's somebody out there that that needs to raise capital. Uh, so whether you could go in directly 50-50 or whether it's kind of that GPLP syndicate model, mm. there's there's people out there that have the experience that are looking for capital. So if you're not comfortable doing it yourself, look to partner up with somebody that is very familiar with that market and they're doing all that stuff that I've talked about already. Then you can piggyback off that and start learning how, how they've done it. Uh, go along on a deal as either an equity partner or as sweat equity, however you need to structure that deal until you get comfortable. And then you can deploy your own capital and, and change your model up uh, at that time. But I, I agree with your point. Exactly. That's just, there, there's a lot more to it. And anytime that there's that complexity, there's, there's the risk of just making a bad mistake and no investor wants to lose capital. I think there's also though, you got to look at the, the flip side, there's opportunity mm-hmm. because I, I think, the harder it is to get access to information and learn a market, the more inefficient it is. So I think if you really learn it, there's probably more opportunity for bigger and better deals that um, you know you, you may not be able to find in other types of investment, right? And when, and when there's inefficiency or more inefficiency in a market, that, that means there's, there's more opportunity to, to be on the, the really good side of a deal. Oh, absolutely. And, and like, it's, it's really a barrier to entry because it, it does take so much work to get to a level where you're comfortable to invest. Consider like if you, if you found a really good house for sale, that was, that was an investment or you found a multifamily uh, apartment complex, you're probably competing with a ton of different people, right? You might be competing with a professional that just wants to make an investment and they're comfortable with it. You're competing with all the small investors that already own a little bit of real estate and they want to grow their portfolio versus industrial, there's very few people that have five houses and then say, you know what, I think I should buy a warehouse. That's just not a natural trajectory that they're going to take as an right. investor. So your your competition is much more, uh, is much less than you would be competing against like a multifamily or residential investor. So I, I agree with your point and I echo that completely is, is uh, less competition, more opportunity, and you see that generally in terms of just the the difference in the cap rates uh, that you'll that you'll earn in industrial versus a, a residential property. Uh, so there there is there is a natural uh, increase in potential returns just as a reflection of of it having those barriers to entry. What um, speaking of that, yeah, what, what what kind of cap rates are are typically out there? Or I'm sure your answer would be like a range, but what, what's kind of the range that you're saying? Yeah, it, it'll, it'll definitely be a range, but it, it's interesting. I've, in the 16 years that I've been doing this, there, there's been a pretty consistent operating band on on where copper cap rates will fall. And I've seen it anywhere from 6% to 8%. Uh, and that's, that's pretty steady in most markets. If you get into these really crazy markets, especially port cities right now, where industrial vacancy rates are sub 1%, you'll see much more compression on the cap rates, like LA, New Jersey, New York, these markets are going crazy right now. But just taking like a traditional uh, market, you're in that six to 8% for a cap rate uh, range versus uh, like multifamily, like I, from my experience anyways, you're kind of in that three to 4% range on average. So you are getting 200, 300 basis points higher of a cap rate uh, for industrial than multifamily uh, on average. Like the, every market's gonna be a bit different, but just in generally speaking. 
That's, that to me is interesting. Does the market, I guess the market views it as more risky than apartments? So, so I, more, yeah. hence more reward? I, I think so. I, I, yeah. I like the flip side to that is I, I think that multifamily comes with risk is if you're buying a, uh, buying at a three or four cap, you're having a hard time even cash flowing on that unless you're putting right. down a, a good chunk of money. Whereas industrial, just because the, the cap rates two, 300 basis points higher, it's a lot easier to cash flow right off the bat. So you've got a bigger margin of safety in there. So it, you're right though. Like I think ultimately uh, the, the market does price all these inefficiencies and, and risk that's all priced into how, how it works. And it's really just supply and demand. There's a, there's a lot of investors chasing multifamily and anytime you have more demand than you have supply, you're going to see that downward pressure. Uh, and a, anytime that there's less buyers and there's supply, which isn't necessarily the case in industrial because there's still healthy demand, but generally speaking, we are going to see higher cap rates on industrial than we will on, on multifamily. Well, and I would, I would think that on the um, industrial side, it's less, less tenants and and less turnover than, you know, a multifamily of similar size. A great point. And, and that is one reason that a lot of people do gravitate towards industrial. Uh, I've got one property as an example, which is just over $3 million. We bought it for two years ago. There's one tenant in there. It's a fortune 1000 uh, tenant. So it's a really strong tenant. Uh, but for $3 million, we have one company that we have to, to essentially manage. So, and it's also a triple net lease. So they're responsible for everything in the building. Uh, we have to do anything structural, but it's a relatively new building. So it's, I think in two years, we've probably been to that building a handful of times versus buying a $3 million apartment complex. How many tenants do you have in that building? What's the turnover? How, what, what's just the management intensive intensity of having to oversee that many tenants and all the issues that come up with it, all the turnover, it's a lot easier from a management standpoint to look after one single industrial tenant versus call it 20 or 30 residential tenants. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess the, even that there's like pros and cons because if, if that tenant goes bankrupt or something and you know, it might be harder, you know, Hey, you go to like hundred percent vacancy yes. <laughs> or from hundred to zero. And then, and then who knows how long it takes to, and, and that all, all goes down that to the type. risk that, that, and, and that, that's why people should be, should have a healthy amount of fear with industrial real estate is you you're spot on that tenant leaves. In this case, we've got a, we've got a really solid tenant in there. So if they decided to stop paying rent, we, we would just sue them. Uh, and I, I just, it does, it doesn't happen very often at all that a big company goes out of business, but if you had a small local company, like if we had a, a machine shop that just worked in this area and they went bankrupt, there might not be anything to sue them for. So that, that is a very real risk that, that people have. And, and, and again, that all goes back to having a, a really good comfort level that if if the property were to go vacant, you know the industrial market really well so that you can remedy any of these issues and get a tenant back in there really quickly. But if you have a property that that goes vacant and say you can't fill it for two years, you can just imagine how that how devastating that would be for, for your your own net worth if you're trying to make mortgage payments, property tax, utilities, any other property level expenses, uh, and then just the lost rental income as well. Like it's, it, it, it could crush an average investor. So definitely pros and cons that, that come with it. 
Well, Chad, this has been uh, very informational and, and informative and, and fun and even went down my metaverse rabbit hole for a little <laughs> bit. Before before I end, I always like to, to do the hyper fast round if you're ready for some rapid fire questions and answers here. All right. What's your biggest piece of advice to a new real estate investor? Be patient. Uh, it, it, you'd be better off taking two years to find the right property than to jump on something quick and regret your decision. Be patient. What's one thing that you think the agents that, that, that wear the agent and the investor hat uh, should consider that maybe they overlook? Don't underestimate the value of having a team. Uh, I, I think a lot of people try to to just be gunslingers and they try to do a lot of stuff themselves, uh, whether it's underwriting or coming up with a value of the property, uh, have a team on your side. Uh, don't, don't neglect the importance of a lawyer, accountant, banker, uh, any other professional that can help round out your blind spots. What's the biggest challenge you've ever had in business and how did you overcome it? Yeah, I, I made a I made a very poor investment. The second one, second property that we ever bought, actually. Uh, long story. I'll I'll just try and keep it really short. It was a property that the t the tenant was going to move out of, and we were faced with having to do a massive retrofit on the property, and we just didn't have the appetite to spend that much money on it, and we were scared that we'd have no rental income. So we ended up uh, selling it for fifteen percent less than we bought it for. Uh, roughly 15%. Uh, and that that hurt, like nobody buys real estate to sell it at a loss on the road. Uh, so that that one was kind of licking our wounds, but it, it, it all underscores that original uh, comment that I made of, of just making sure you really understand what you buy. Uh, and if it were to go vacant, if that tenant were, were to have left, we should have had a better plan in place uh, to to fix that solution. So that that, that one definitely hurt. And, and that's reinforced my belief system going forward. All right. If you had to start all over, you couldn't take your, your money or investments or reputation with you. Uh, all you could take is what you've learned. What would the first thing be that you, that you do? I, I would put that money in, in something safe uh, and, and tell myself not to spend any of it until I was 100% comfortable with what I was buying. And to piggyback on that, I would only buy something that I was incredibly passionate about and, mm. and not just something passionate at this moment in time, but that's something I could, that I could see myself continuing to be passionate about down the road, because I, I think you really need to always be learning, always be, being staying on top of trends and what's happening in the market. Uh, so I, I, I personally would only invest in something that I was passionate about and that I could reason that I could have a competitive edge on that, that is that I, that I could buy something that the average investor just couldn't compete with me on. Uh, and, and then just be patient and wait until I, I was comfortable making an investment decision that fits those criteria. And I had the money to do it and I found the right opportunity. All right. Last question. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I would love to do more, more capital raises. Uh, so every property that, that, that I've bought with my partner, we've, we've put our own capital into it. Uh, and we've essentially run it as, as like a small partnership. I would love to do something more elaborate down the road and, and actually raise capital, raise outside capital in, a, in like a GPLP model uh, and, and purchase larger properties. So that's probably a five to 10 year goal, source larger properties, bring in outside investors, uh, be the, 
Grant Cardone of industrial mm. real estate. <laughs> well, that would be amazing to see. We wish you uh, a lot of luck on that journey. Before we sign off, if people want to get in touch with you or uh, just connect with you or learn about buying industrial real estate. Yep, I'm pretty active. Pretty active on LinkedIn, so they can uh, look me up there. Uh, or email is uh, Griffiths, uh, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H-S-C-R-E at gmail.com. All right, Chad. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and educating our audience about the, the specialty of industrial real estate. To all of our listeners and viewers out there, thank you for tuning in. Please remember to leave us some comments. Let us know what you thought of the show and share it with someone that you think could benefit from seeing it as well.